Welcome to the final draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation features a panel of contributors, including Michaela Saunders, Janine Lane, and Jane Harrison, to discuss the new anthology, Flock, First Nations Stories, Then and Now. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is unceded land, stolen land. Treaty has never been made in Australia. Now, each of my contributors today have, well, they've contributed a story to this anthology flock. It is First Nations Stories Then and Now and brings together a range of some of not only the most incredible First Nations storytellers, but the most incredible writers, authors, poets working in Australia at the moment. The collection was edited by Ellen Van Nieven and features an array of stories exploring uh, issues personal and, and political that really inform our country at the moment. It's an incredibly exciting collection and I'm so happy to be able to bring together a panel of people to discuss the importance of these stories, the importance of storytelling, and the impact that these stories can and should have in our world. I've um, I've left the audio on this panel, you know, relatively untouched because I want you to experience the dynamic of having just incredible people in a room or not... <laughs> in a Zoom room, talking to each other. So please join me uh, as I am joined by Michaela Saunders, Janine Lane and Jane Harrison to discuss Flock, First Nation stories, then and now. I have an absolutely fantastic collection to introduce to you and a really special discussion that we're about to have. It's not a format that we usually do here on Final Draft and I'm excited to introduce a panel of writers flock it is a collection of first nation stories then and now the stories promise to roam the landscape of aboriginal and torres strait islander storytelling bringing together voices from across the generations the collection is edited and features a story from ellen van nieven it features contributions from the likes of tara june winch tony birch and melissa lukashenko as well as the guests that i have joining me today i'd like to introduce michaela saunders Janine Lane and Jane Harrison. Welcome. Welcome, each of you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure, Andrew. Hi. Now, I'd like, I'd like to introduce each, each of these incredible contributors in a little bit more detail. Michaela Saunders, her story in the collection is called River Story. Michaela is a Guri writer, teacher and community researcher. Also, we are joined by Janine Lane. Her story in the collection is Forbidden Fruit. Janine is a Wiradjuri poet, writer, and academic from southwest New South Wales. And Jane Harrison's story is born still. Jane is a playwright and author descended from the Murawari people. It is just so fantastic to have a panel together to discuss an anthology because anthologies are always these incredible uh, ways to approach literature with so many ideas. Uh, We could probably sit and have a conversation just about any single one of these stories, and there's 20 in the book. But I thought, can we start with this as a collection, this incredible collection of some of the most incredible storytellers and writers in Australia at the moment? 
but where does it sit in the broader history of First Nations writing? And where, where do you feel we're at in terms of listening and acknowledging these stories? Janine, can I ask you to, to start with that? Hi, you're do you're do marrying everyone. I'm acknowledging today that I am on uh, the lands of um, the Ngunnawal peoples in Canberra. Pay my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that I'm living on lands never ceded. Thanks. Um, look, as a gathering, uh, flock is tremendously important in in many ways like first nations writing is always important because first nations writing does the job that national history fails to do which is tell our, our her stories our histories we can't rely on national history to do that um as a collection um there's been an, a dearth of first nations gatherings or anthologies almost in the last 20 years there's a couple of Fantastic collections came out in the um, early 2000s, uh, like Inside Black Australia, edited by the late Uncle Kevin Gilbert. Um, There was also Paperbark by the University of Queensland Press, a collection of black writings. And on the West Coast, uh, Rosemary Vandenberg and Anne Brewster's um, Those Who Remain Will Remember. But then there were no great gatherings of although there were a lot of good individual works, but historically no great gatherings of work until last year where we had a, and early this year, where we've had a really important explosion with um, and much needed too um, in terms of the breadth and the diversity um, across geography, genre and gender of our writing community. So last year we had Firefront and a collection of First Nations essays and poetry edited by Alison Whittaker, Homeland's Calling um, by Desert P Media, which was a collection of hip-hop lyrics, uh, poems inspired by hip-hop lyrics by a new generation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers, Flock, that we're talking about, also by Ellen and Gawayu Magabala Books and edited by myself, which has 61 poets and 12 First Nations languages in it. So it's uh, rich and timely that we have this collection and the name itself is incredibly powerful. I think it's a beautiful collection. I really enjoyed, um, I mean, you know, when I it was sent to us in the mail a little bit before it came out. I was just so struck by the beautiful cover for starters. And then, you know, of course I read um, Ellen's very, always very beautiful and um, crystalline and, and generous introduction. And I knew I was in for a treat, you know, and um, I particularly enjoy the way that they've curated it and kind of let all of the stories move into each other so it kind of tells a bigger story of you know a kind of meta-narrative of um aboriginal storytelling or aboriginal and torres strait islander storytelling over the last 25 years um yeah there was stuff i'd already read in here and there were writers i I hadn't read or i hadn't heard of and i just yeah i even yeah i don't know i just i I thought it was um i think it's a really beautiful collection I'm really stoked to be part of this collection, actually. Um, River Story was the second story I ever wrote in my whole life and um, it's very dear to me and it's really nice that it's being situated in a collection of other black writing and, um, 
yeah, it's a, it's a nice home for it. One of the well, there's many special things about the book, but, yeah, Michaela, Michaela reminded me. Um, Forbidden Fruit is almost a poem. It's a micro story and it's one of the first pieces I ever wrote as well. I've written a lot of things since then. But, yeah, it was a very early and kind of experimental pace where I was looking at um, how do you write a black story without, you know, really just putting a sign around your neck and saying, hey, I'm black or something. So, and it was also because I started very much with poetry and judicious choices of words, I guess. So, yeah, I think um, they did a great job there in terms of like showcasing in many ways the way the genesis and the evolution of many of these writers as writers. Similarly, uh, Janine, uh, I didn't, there's not a mention of my Aboriginality in my story. No, yeah, and, that's right. Yeah, and yeah. I'm quite excited that it still can be included in and yeah. very, very chuffed indeed to be in such illustrious company. And, yeah, just that, as you said, um, Michaela, the, the meta-narrative of the stories and how they flow from one to another and, um, you know, the thematics and the diversity of them. I think Ellen's done a br- brilliant job of curating this collection. Yeah, and I think um, especially important is you know, this is the first collection curated by a non-binary Aboriginal writer, uh, which is historical and it is a very, you know, it is a very queer collection. There's a lot of um, queer narratives in here and um, it's really important that, you know, we're also, um, you know, we're also having our time to shine, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And... Seems to be part of, um, and I'm writing about this at the moment too. Across, I'm always interested in the trans geographic, the trans scene more broadly, but the trans geographic conversations between First Nations people, trans Tasman, trans Atlantic. Um, so in First Nations North America, there's been some also stunning kind of collections of fiction and nonfiction that um, are by non-binary, two-spirit poets and thinkers. Um, And it it is, um, it really recognises the way colonialism binarised things and these works as part of the meta story that um, Michaela mentioned and and then Jane picked up on is um, one of the things this does is just challenge a lot of the limits that Western rationalism has previously imposed on First Nations people and writers, and a lot of that is those binaries and polarities mm-hmm. um, that didn't exist in um, in pre-colonial times. So it's it makes um, these works collectively make really important statements and are. Um, both individually and collectively, really important decolonization spaces. I would agree. I I just love. I've always loved anthologies. Um, I think it's a. I think it kind of stems back to my teenage years of um. You know, I get music magazines. I grew up in a regional town, so we didn't have the internet back then. And the only way to kind of find new music is you know compilations, music magazines, or someone had, um, would take some stuff for you and you'd figure out what you like that way. And I see story anthologies as the same. Yes, I actually, um, the anthology that started me writing my own writing a few years ago was 
an anthology called Walking the Clouds, um, edited by Grace Dillon, who's an Anishinaabe scholar. Yeah. And it's a, it's a global anthology of Indigenous science fiction. And I loved it and I found so much in there and so much joy. I've read it, reread it so many times. And um, I saw what, you know, I saw what Indigenous speculative fiction could do yeah. and I started thinking about how I could write my own. I started reading everything that was available. And, yeah, so I think anthologies are really – and I hope hopefully Flock does that to somebody else, you know, who picks it up. so. And I also think the time is right for um, for a collection of um, First Nations nonfiction in Australia mm. out there, but the time is really right for that creative nonfiction collection gathering to come. Absolutely. Let's talk about your next job, Janine. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> some publishers and things are listening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. Michaela, it's already done what you've hoped for. It's introduced me to both both yours and Janine's writing. Um, Jane, I, I had read Becoming Kiralee Lewis um, already, and I've just I've fallen in love with so many of these stories. And I, uh, can I ask a little bit about the form? Because in their introduction, Ellen Van Nieven describes the precision of language of short story writing, having the right mix of narrative elements. They also describe, and I'm, I'm going to heartily agree here, that short stories are a gift to the reader. I've discovered so much already in Flock. And each of your pieces feel tightly drawn and incredibly personal in, in such a short space. I mean, I think, I think of the three that we're discussing, Michaela, yours might be the longest at only 16 pages, but there is so much. How does, how does a short story emerge for all of you? And, Michaela, can I, can I throw to you to, to start that one off? Well, this one in particular started life in a creative writing workshop that I took at the University of Sydney um, back in 2017. So this is the second class I took. Um, my teacher was... Dr. Beth Yarp, who um, is an incredible person and writer. And um, she, so she scaffolded, you know, a short story writing technique with us. So we started off, she, she wanted us to write, think about if we were going to write a novel, how would it start? And we just started anywhere. And I just wrote, the scene I wrote for that was um, the birth scene. And um, then she asked how that story, novel would end and and then I wrote something else that didn't make it into that story but then she kept getting us to go back and forth like what would come next what would go before and so in that way I just wrote these series of scenes and it turned into that story and you, I started to think about these connections and relationships through time so I wrote most of those scenes for that class um, mind you when I wrote it it wasn't the writing wasn't so good um this story i have submitted it to i think four or five different opportunities and they've been rejected for all of them but the the good thing about that is for me anyway so what what will happen is i would submit the story and it'll take two or three months for them to actually accept or to tell you that you know it's been rejected but in that time i'm not sitting around twiddling my thumb Mm. I, no, I'm not working on that. I'm actually writing other stuff and I'm reading, 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 writing, writing, writing. I'm getting better at reading and writing. So when that rejection comes back and I get that story and it, you get a bit of a sting when you get the rejection, but I read it and I go, oh, no, now I know it's working and then I work on it. And I've, I've done that a few times with this, this um, often rejected story and I submitted it to the Elizabeth Jolly Short Story Prize last year 
um, when I was broke and I was just trying to get somewhere and um, the judges loved it and that that's it and that's how it ended up in this um, collection. So you just that's how that's how this story came about anyway it's it's been a few years um it was a few years in the making or in the making and the polishing of it anyway mm. yeah and i think a lot of good stories are like that and that's how i sort of students workshop with me and i think that you're never too old to workshop or never too good to workshop i workshop my own work all the time and write it and rewrite it and um yeah like with the piece I wrote it started um as an observation so it's almost I use fictional devices to to tell the story but it could almost be non-fiction mm. because it's based on an observation of a neighbor when I was living in a group house uh yeah when I was pregnant with my first child actually but um yeah and I was just sort of moving from how, you know, like how would you put that together I wrote a little poem about it, but then I just sort of challenged myself. Um, as you do, and Michaela mentioned opportunities, and the, at the time that story, the Canberra Times was running a little kind of mini competition where they asked for a micro story every week, had to get a story into 500 words. And so that just seemed like something I could do from moving from poems to, so, yeah, that's the, uh, and also I was very much at the time challenging myself to, like what Jane said, to, you know, and, and thinking about what is black writing and what do people expect? And you, you can't just write what people expect. Otherwise that's just colonial writing and, and, you know, how to write a black story without using a sledgehammer approach and putting a big sign up and saying this is a black story yeah or just so, jumping in a deadly or a gamble just to <laughs> do that yeah, just in case just to make it unmistakable but yeah and as for my story I had the unusual experience really um, I was writer in residence at Monash University writing a play and I put that down in an unusually short amount of time for me because usually I labour over things for 7, 10, 15 years or so. Uh, but um, I put it down quite quickly in six weeks and I had a bit of extra time up my sleeve. Now, um, obviously, the experiences of born still, about having stillborn baby, I experienced myself. And indeed, um, the anniversary of that experience was only this Monday just gone by um so how many years did I say it's 24 years um so I um had obviously that lived experience and the story just went down pretty much in one go um and like like uh yourself Michaela I uh sent it off to a short story competition and it didn't get anywhere um but when Ellen was doing a online resource um I sent it off to her and it is the only short story I've ever had published and the only one I've really um written apart from sort of draft versions of various things I think it's actually the hardest medium Hard. right I think just to have a beginning, middle and end in such a short space of time, take the reader on the journey with you um, and and have something that so crystallises in, um, in your writing in such a short space of time without 
the unfolding that a longer story or a, a full-length play has. Yeah, for me, it's the most challenging. It's interesting that you wrote that in fiction too, because like my piece, it could have almost been nonfiction. But absolutely, yeah. I think one, for me, once it gets onto the page, that that's when it becomes something other than just the lived experience. It becomes a, a creative act, and not that everything in the story did happen, but no. it's the way you 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 frame that and the way you unpack it. I guess becomes the creative element. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear that. Um, there's, you know, things in my story were definitely um, inspired by things that have happened to me and, and family members, but it actually that is not a story. That is not a true story at all. Yeah. Um, I've had people come up to me and go, oh, you know, assuming that my mum's passed away. My mum's just lives down the road, you know. <laughs> um, but that, you know, I, I, I was I was with my uncle who I was very close to when he passed away and I was holding his head and hand. So, of course, that, you know, that's a, that was a really um, a huge experience in my life. Um, so that's always you know, of course, in your head and when you start writing, when, you, when you're responding to a prompt in class, you know, you're not actually consciously thinking about what to write and these things kind of seep out and they want to be known, they want to be written about. My, my old people, they want their stories to be written about. So when I start writing and these experiences come up, um, I know not to stop and just to keep going and to kind of honour what, what they're saying to me, what, what they're um, telling me to write about. Can I ask a little about the imperative to tell stories just in general? Because one one story that really jumped out at me, and I'm I'm I seem to be just keep talking about Ellen, but Ellen's story, each city, which sets up this sort of dystopia. Um, it's it's a future dystopia, but it feels like it could also be right. Uh, right now but in this space English is the only permitted language in the country and the powerful voice of the protagonist writing and, and their hip-hop sees them targeted by the government and yet they still tell their stories and it's it's this harrowing journey and I, I wondered about that that need to tell stories and to continue telling stories even against um, oppression and I, I, I'm very conscious that it's probably only my perspective as as a white man that can see this as being so far away perhaps from my daily experience and i can i can see michaela your um your facial expression says to me yeah you're you're right andrew this is far from your daily experience but not everybody's yeah yeah it's it's um look i'm i'm teaching at the moment i'm teaching a, a unit about um, you know, Indigenous cultures and stuff. And we just had a um, had a class on language and education and, and, and you know, teaching and learning within Indigenous cultures. And um, something I like to really impress upon my students, and I'm going to talk about it here because it's relevant, is that um, had it not been for such strong storytelling oral um, tradition yeah. in communities, we would have nothing left. You know, people talk about how the written word is the best form of um, storing information, but look at what happens to the Great Library of Alexandria. And I absolutely guarantee that if all our knowledge had been written in books, they would have been burned. Yeah. Yeah. What happened to our trees and our art and, and things that were written on? But because our old people carried this knowledge in stories and songs and were able to pass them down, 
that is why we still have what we have today, you know. So, yeah, so that Ellen's story is really um, just talking about what if that happened in a, in a contemporary context, but it's not new. It's not and it's new. also not out of the question. Like it's also historical and um, scarily prophetic. And um, just to build on that, like it could be prophecy as much as is, is, is history, in other words. And, um, yeah, I teach a, a sub, I'm teaching at the moment too, and I, one of the subjects I teach is about not telling other people's stories or ethical writing and um, you need to read other people's stories and learn other people's stories. Like nations are built on literature, really. Nations are built on stories, whatever kind of nations they are, and when you kind of overwrite one set of stories for another, that's colonialism. So the importance of these stories are just, you know, absolutely like it is life itself. Um, and also so important to that too is that people get to tell their own stories and you, you and that you read about other people's stories. You read about like, you know, like you said, that's so far away from your life. Yep. And uh I know you wouldn't have, but you never should have tried to write about that if you were ever thinking about it. But, you know, there's a lot of people who don't. And, and there's this amazingly worrying trend, not helped by people like Lionel Shriver who described cultural appropriation as a fad or something. Um, well, she wasn't the only one. She was just the most recent and loud, yeah. Um, so, but, yeah, like uh, that is also... Um, Stealing other people's stories is like genocide. It's a death sentence. And so the importance of people having the space to tell their story and also just want to can out the idea of the great white social justice novel or this idea that people tell other people's stories because the people themselves can't tell them. Mm. Look, I'm sorry, any ethical advocate makes themselves redundant. So if you're concerned that a group of people doesn't have the space to tell their story, instead of telling the story for them, just move over, give them some space, make sure this it's probably not because they can't tell their story, it's probably because the space isn't there. Mm. Or, or someone else has taken that space or up. Or someone else has taken the space up. And look, over there are plenty of people out there who, you know, they, whether it's, um, you know, culture or gender or disability, there are people out there who are speaking on these issues and um, they're, they're not the best place. And to quite be. frankly, they shouldn't be because it's not their story. Right. Yeah. That's right. Mm. Um, but anyway, I don't want to turn this into a big, um, <laughs> a big venting session. <laughs> I'll do that enough. Um, but, yeah. What do you think, Jane? Do you? Yes, well, Janine said earlier that, that this collection is a uh, one uh, aspect of decolonizing, and I agree that we are story. As human beings, we are story. Culture is carried through story, and that's what we've got. And so it's, um, it's about time we had space and um, audiences. I think audiences, building audiences for First Nations writing is also really something I'm passionate about because I think they are subtly different. I mean, most of us are bicultural. We exist in um, the, the Western world as well and we can do the Western thing very well, just as well, if not 
better than <laughs> um, other practitioners. Um, but we also have our own stories and our own culture to to reflect upon and to share. Um, and I think it's a huge act of generosity for us to share our stories in these ways um, and so that people get um, uh, insight into um, different ways of being and different, I, I mean, I just think it's even really clever in this collection that um, that Ellen chose to do the stories alphabetically but back to front alphabetically, starting with W and going to A in terms of the author's surnames. I thought... Oh, you know, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> I just yeah, I turn the alphabet upside down. And I just think that that's, you know, a clever way that Ellen is, again, doing things slightly different and not having to just do it in the Western um, way every time that she can do her own... They can, Sorry, they can do their own uh, approach to... Uh, putting this collection together. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm learning a lot. I, I, I'm glad you pointed that out because I'm, I'm actually um, I'm editing my own anthology at the moment, which will be out next year with UQP. And this is another world first. This is a world, the world's first anthology of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander speculative fiction. So we've got horror, we've got sci-fi, futurism, um, ghost stories, you know, all that. Um, and... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm learning by looking at the way other people have curated. Um, mm -hmm. So, Janine, your anthology too, yeah. um, poetry, and and just seeing how, how how things are put together and what kind of choices people make. And I, yeah, I, I didn't even think about that. So, thanks for pointing that out, Jane. I observed across the collection and and in each of your stories, strong bonds of family and particularly bonds between mother and child. And Jane, particularly in your story, Born Still, this incredible woman who is working, building a house, um, caring for her young child at 36 weeks pregnant and just this incredible strength. And I actually, I don't know how to frame this question other than strength, but I hoped maybe we could talk a little bit about that, that strength and that endurance of particularly women um, that I saw in Born Still but throughout the collection. And, Jane, maybe I can throw, throw to you to start um, this discussion since I've highlighted uh, your story. <laughs> strength. Well, um, thank you. That's very generous of you to say so. I think, I think uh, without saying um, a gener gross generalisation, but I think Aboriginal women are incredibly resilient and I think you know, we've used to having so many things thrown at us uh, through, um, you know, through society that um, to survive we have to um, draw on, you know, these resources and and the resources uh, of the women who have gone before us um, as well and draw on their strengths of our ancestors. And so I think often when things are tough, although I don't refer to it in that story, that I'm, um, I, I consider who has gone before me in terms of my um, heritage and know that no matter what I have to go through, that um, many of those other women and men have also gone through much um, more difficult times than I have. And so I really got to 
pull my bootstraps up and get on with the job that I have to do, whatever that job is. Yeah, I just want to agree with that. Like I think that it is a responsibility. I mean, I was raised to understand that it was a responsibility to keep stories going and try and get a better story out there. And, you know, it is very much women who do that. Like culturally we had a role as gatherers, gathering. Um, Gathering sustains the whole clan. Hunting's glamorous but gathering's what keeps (laughs) day to day. And, um, yeah, and and also just not just not physical things, but metaphorically too. Gatherings, you know, the holders of stories, genealogies, givers of names of you know generation. The kids, there's there's always someone who names the kids, and that's that's where I come from. Always a woman, and so they're all they're all those other sorts of gatherings as well. That um, and that yeah, that like Jane said, yeah, it's a responsibility. Um to be resilient yeah I don't know what do you think Michaela well I yeah I definitely agree with um you know both of you but I've just had a very different experience so I never knew my grandmother I never knew my great-grandmother um both Aboriginal both stolen Aboriginal women um and I don't have a good relationship with my own mother but I do have um I've got a lot of brothers, uncles, um, people, and that, you know, so growing up, those were the stories I was immersed in um, and more more of a, more of the men's side of things. Um, so I don't really have that matriarchal kind of connection. Um, certainly in my community, you know, there's a lot of, you know, aunties and stuff, and I, I do feel I have those strong relationships, but in my own family, I don't. Um, um, yeah, I've only got brothers, I've only got uncles, and, um, yeah, I've just... We've always been close and it hasn't really been that kind of gendered or matriarchal way, but um, I certainly do have strong connections um, to previous generations and to generations coming up and um, I cherish them and, um, yeah, and when I say previous generations and those coming up, I don't just mean my blood relatives, you know. I belong to a really incredible community who grew me up and who, um, you know, I... All of my work and my writing is based here and, um, yeah, so to me my family isn't just, you know, those blood connections but it's the people who've invested in me and who I invest in, yeah. Absolutely. That's it for this great conversation with Michaela Saunders, Janine Lane and Jane Harrison. Each are contributors to the anthology Flock, First Nation Stories Then and Now, which is out now from University of Queensland Press. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Please stay in touch. I would love to hear what you're reading. I want to know what you're thinking about the stories that we're bringing to you. You can find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. It's at Final Draft 2SER. If you want to get more Great Conversations, if you want to discover more about Great Australian Writing, subscribe to the podcast. There are There's a new conversation every week. There are bonuses. There's always stuff popping up. It will all be in your podcast feed as soon as it arrives. My name is Andrew Popel. I'm going to be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Thank you for joining me. Until then, happy reading. Bye now.